Praise God. It's good to be in church this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, I've been enjoying going through this sermon series with you on church and society. And today is something uh, I want to share with you that's near and dear to my heart. Hopefully, actually, hopefully you can tell that everything I'm talking about is near and dear to my heart. It's hard to find anywhere in the Word of God that's not near and dear to my heart. But this, this one in particular has always, um, always been something that has just been very, very close. And this is the fact that the church is multi-generational. Amen? Okay, come on. Let me know you're with me right from the beginning this morning. Amen? Yeah, there we go. There we go. So before we get into it, let's just talk about our definition of the church just one more time, just as a reminder. The church is the body of Christ. All the people who accept Christ's gift of salvation and follow Christ's teaching. Kept that simple for, for very obvious reasons. The church also involves love. It involves obedience. And it should be reflected in the joy that's in our hearts when people are around us. Amen? In all circumstances. Have you ever noticed how much easier it is and how much more grace we can extend to children versus adults? You ever notice how quick it is when, when a little person does something in your life that, that you maybe would normally make you upset, it doesn't make you quite as upset? My kids were so cute. They're still cute, but when they were little and they were chubbier and they were squishier, it was just, I couldn't, it was so hard to get mad at them. I remember when we first moved to Aurora. So when we accepted this position at Willowdale PC, we moved to Aurora. And that's where we lived at first. And Ollie was only like two years old. And it was the first time in our life that Karen and I decided we're moving in, into a house where, that we were renting. And I said, let's just, let's buy furniture. Who here has lived on hand-me-down furniture and stuff like that? Do you get to a point in your life where you're like, all of a sudden you decide, ooh, I get to buy something. I'm going to buy something new. Well, this was like a big deal for us. We were actually going to buy furniture. <laughs> and and I, I, I tell you, like right back to my first year in university, my first couch that I owned in university in our apartment was a couch that we got from the Salvation Army that cost us $15. And the arms of the thing was a little sticky. I'm not going to lie. It was kind of gross, but it got us by. We were teenagers, right? going to college for the first time. We didn't care too much about it. We had somewhere to plop down. But when we moved to Aurora, we decided to buy furniture. And so we went out and we got a nice new Chesterfield, Chesterfield or that's a good Canadian word, isn't it? A good couch set. And uh, we were really happy, man. I think we got it like for half price and we were all excited. But then we decided uh, when we were looking for cushions and we found these cushions that were a little more expensive and we're like, oh, should we, shouldn't we? And we were like, well, maybe we'll spurge. It's not something we would have ever spent a lot of money on in the past. And we are like, well, maybe we'll spend a little bit of money on these cushions. And they were, you know, downfield, comfortable. You know, uh, you know, you sit on the couch, you know, or you're reading or whatever you're doing, watching TV, you want to be comfortable, right? So we splurged on these cushions. And I'm not going to tell you how much we paid on them because even now it feels a little embarrassing. <laughs> but my little boy, <clears throat> oh, man, he was cute. Still is cute. You see him running around. But um, he had this affinity for markers. Even when we were in search up north, he, when, we, when we packed out of our room down behind the bed, there was like little things written on the wall. He couldn't even write back then, but he would still find a way. And, and, and we, we adopted the phrase, you write on paper, not on things. Only paper, right? And so we get him to say it back in his little voice, only paper. And he would say it back. And, but 
he had affinity, and he really loved, for some reason, these permanent black markers. And he managed to get his hands on a wide tip black Sharpie, the tool of the devil. <laughs> it's a little dramatic, maybe, but. And, uh, man, and he wrote all over our new cushions. And I, when I tell you that these cushions are still on our couch and they still have the black marker on them because I could not get it out, I am not, I am not lying. But he was so cute. I was so angry and I tried to be stern with him. But, but he was so cute and he has such a, he's such a soft-hearted little boy and even today he's still so soft-hearted. The anger quickly turned to grace and the next thing I knew, I was the one who felt like the bad guy. How does that happen? But you have lots of grace and mercy for the little people in your life, right? The little kids. Oh, I remember when we were pastoring up north and uh, we used to love to interact with the kids. We'd have lots of family events, you know, where, where we just want to invite kids. We would have kids programs in the summer. And, and we had a fair amount of kids come out on Sunday and we would come down, down to the front and we would pray with the kids before we dismissed them. And uh, my wife has always been known, as long as we've been in ministry, as PCA, which stands for Pastor Carrie Ann. And I mean, even when we came to Willowdale, people, I think, knew her name as PCA before they knew what her full name was. What does the CA stand for again? It's Carrie Ann. It's my name. PCA. But, and I think they struggled so hard to find a nickname for me like that because PP doesn't really work that great, right? <laughs> so... So they were asking the kids, you know, what can we call Pastor Peter? And this little voice popped up, pee-pee. <laughs> and, and they were like, whoa. And then they were all laughing, and they were pointing at me and stuff. And then one little kid named Riley looks up, he says, Pastor pee-pee. And wouldn't, <laughs> I'm like, well, one of the pee, never mind. And wouldn't you know that it stuck? It stuck. And I embrace that name today. <laughs> with great endearment. Because you got to understand that what, did that what that did for those little kids is they felt a part of things. When they saw that I didn't correct them and that I didn't fix it, they felt seen by their pastor. They felt welcomed by their pastor. They felt a part of the church, and that was a small price to pay. And I, I feel bad because many of the people in the church, I think, were embarrassed for me, but I didn't really care. You know why? Because these little kids were approaching me now. Hi, Pastor Pee-Pee. And I would, I would call them back by their name, and I'd say, hey, how are you doing? And I had a relationship. Man, I love you little people. I love the little people. I can't wait, and I'm believing for this place to be crawling with little people. That's a church alive. Not just little people, every generation. Every generation. I believe for a church that's humming with agreement between every generation. I didn't care. But please don't call me Pastor Pee-Pee. <laughs> that's like saying, well, I know that's coming for the next few months, right? Like, uh, that's not dying anytime soon. That's all good. I really don't have a lot of shame, so go nuts. To be honest, I think, like I said, people were more embarrassed for me than I was for myself. There's a reason, you know, we extend this grace to children, and it is a picture of the kind of grace we should have for each other. 
It's a picture of the kind of grace we should have each other. And you say, well, we should be cuter then, shouldn't we? It'd be easier to have grace for each other. Well, we're not all the cutest. So you can't just base how much grace and how much mercy you give to be a person to whether they look at you like Puss in Boots in the movie. You know what I mean? Like, grace is more than just how people, you can have love and encouragement for people across generational lines. They're, they're innocent, right? Children are innocent. They're vulnerable. And to them, so much is still new. And many times they don't understand ramifications and consequences. They have no fear in a lot of cases. I remember the things I did when I was a little boy, and I think back now as a 44-year-old, and I'm like, I can't believe I did that. It was crazy in a lot of instances. And I'll tell you some of my crazy grown-up Newfoundland stories as we get to know each other a little better. But, uh, yeah, you have no fear when you're younger. You don't understand consequences. You don't understand ramifications. It is worth noting that this grace oftentimes exists with our own children, but not always with other people's children. Right? I want to make clear this morning, it's also worth noting that Jesus did not make this distinction. He did not make this distinction. Luke 18, 15 to 17, a passage you're probably quite familiar with, says people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them to bless them, to pray with them, of course. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. To these, but to people like these, right? Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Father, we thank you for your word. We are embraced by your goodness this morning, embraced by your mercy. Lord, we sung of the cross today and all that it provided for us today, Lord Jesus. We're singing these words, Lord, this morning. It was a straight gospel. It was such an amazing uh, worship set this morning that we could offer our voices and our praise and our sacrifice to you. Lord, we continue to give you praise this morning with how we receive and apply your word to our hearts. Lord, that it wouldn't just change how we feel right now, but it would influence how we walk outside these doors in our homes. Lord, we love you. By the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me to function under the anointing that you place on my life to do this. Lord, communicate your word to us by the power of your Holy Spirit today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Not only is Jesus acknowledging the importance of children in the kingdom, but he is also calling his disciples and consequently the church to learn from them. The idea in the church that we can only learn from older generations to younger generations is not really altogether true. At least it's not displayed that way in the Bible completely. They're, they're teaching us. They don't, probably don't realize they're teaching us. But Jesus tells pay attention to what they're doing because they're teaching us. We need to see how willing they approach and accept. We also need to be guarded with how willing they approach and accept. My daughter would go to anybody when she was little. She'd walk up to somebody in the mall and say, Hi, how are you? And so we walking in the mall and I'm holding her hand close. She's like, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. I'm like, You're squeezing my hand too tight because I'm afraid you're going to run off with somebody. She just trusted everybody. We can also learn from their amazement and their wonder. 
I don't know why, but it takes a little bit of work when we're older as, as believers to, to capture that wonder that we have in Jesus and that amazement, you know, and all that he's done. And it takes work. It takes that everyday life to, to live that way. While I have countless stories, like I said, I could regale you with about the wisdom I have received from my elders, I want us to be reminded that there is much the adults can learn from the young among us as well. Jesus put on display the importance of this and of the church being multi-generational in Matthew chapter 18. He says this, he says, Matthew 18 verses 1 to 5, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Here the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom. Verse 2 says, He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Let me call you back to verse 2. It says, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. I think we kind of jump over this passage a little bit. I want you to imagine the 12 standing in a circle in whatever shape, calling a little child. I assume a toddler. I pit, In my mind, I don't know, I picture someone all his age or younger, maybe a four-year-old, a five-year-old, I don't know, and he picked them up and he put them in the middle of these grown men. Just a visual image of the representation of what he says after that is there right in front of them. Sometimes, you know, we got to kind of take ourselves and put ourselves in a story. Just imagine these little children. I don't know if the little child sat on the ground in the middle of the emergency, stood amongst them, but all these grown men, you know, maybe they're a little more grown than me, only 5'8". I've been 5'8 since grade 8, but maybe there's a few of them that are 6'2", 6'4". I don't know how big they are, but they're standing. I, imagine, I get this picture, they're standing in a circle. And this little child in the middle of them, in the visual image that Jesus just placed in front of them before he even said a word. We hear him begin to teach. They are talking about the possibility of being high-ranking officials in the greatest kingdom ever, in the kingdom of God. This is what they're arguing over. And Jesus says, it is not about power and prestige, it is about complete trust an unhindered belief and imagination about what God can accomplish in and through us, not how prominent we will become. It is just as much about this little child in front of you as it is about you and what position you think that you will hold. Preaching and teaching this one thing, uh, preaching and teaching this, pardon me, is one thing, but the Holy Spirit does soften our ambitious and at times self-centered hearts through the presence of children, doesn't it? Doesn't he? Doesn't he come and suffer, soften our hearts just like he did with me, with my little son, when he defaced our property? You know, it's amazing how he can just give us a different perspective. And if we could just find a way to take that perspective and share it with the church as a whole, to have the grace and the mercy we show a little child, to the church as a whole, and to society as a whole. Jesus goes on to say in verse 6, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. 
crazy picture when you think of it. A millstone was a big, heavy kind of a rock wheel that was used to crush grains and to make cereal type things. And it was several hundred pounds. And the image of tying that around your neck and growing up around the ocean, it gives me the shivers. But he said, if you leave one of these little children, if you leave someone who believes in me away to cause him to stumble, it's better you tie a millstone around your neck. Jesus was serious about the church being multicultural, multi-generational, cultural as well. That was last week. <laughs> Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 145. I want to take a look at this psalm together as we consider the importance of the multi-generational church as we um, yeah, bring this together this morning. I want to read the entire psalm. I know it's a little bit long, but it's a psalm of praise written by David, and I just think it's an amazing, amazing psalm. And so even if you just want to stop... Take this in, just listen to it quietly, and meditate on it, even as we speak of it this morning. Beginning of verse 1, it says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Just listen to verse 4, it says, One generation commends your works to another, They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. Verse 8, very familiar to many of us. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all his promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. God bless the reading of his word. I can't read that without getting a little amped up. When I speak of my Savior like that, I can't help but just get a little bit excited and there's three vital components of a multi-generational church from this passage that I want to share with you this morning and the first one is praise now praise is all through this passage and you cannot read this passage without actually verbalizing praise to the king of kings but we must firstly understand that we need to create a culture of praise He says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord 
and most worthy of praise, his greatness no one can fathom. If we are to be a multi-generational church, we need to have a culture of praise, not only when we gather, but also in our homes and in our specific realms of influence. You've probably heard me say this now, realms of influence, uh, multiple times, and I'm sure many of you know what I'm talking about, but it's just a circle around us, the people that are in. We all have our own realm of influence, and some of them cross over each other, but there's a, you have a circle of influence, and we need to be cautious of it. Forever in verse 1 and later in verse 2, uh, the, ver- the word here in Hebrew is the word olam, and this is the same word for eternity that I spoke on from Ecclesiastes 3.11 when, when I preached the call. In that, phrase, in that passage it was ha-olam, but here it's eternity, olam, eternity. Verse 2, it says, every day I will praise you. The word every day can be broken down into two parts, every which is call and day which is yom. And the Hebrew for every here literally translates all, everyone, everything, totally of a mass or collective, the totality of a mass or collective. Something that Carrie Ann and I try to do in our marriage is we try not to use these all-encompassing words. You do that all the time. You want to get in trouble with your wife, people? Men? Tell your wife she does something all the time. You know what you're going to hear back? All the time? Really? So we try to take out these all-encompassing words. Call is the actual word in Hebrew that they use, the everyday word to use for all. But when I read it, and I read this line, the totality of a mass or collective, if we would just in our own understanding realize that when we use these words, all, every, you do this all the time, even when we speak to our kids, you know, there's big words. And it's a big word here when he says that every day I will praise you. All the time I will praise you. With all that I am, I will praise you. In every situation, I will praise you. In my realm of influence, I will praise you. How I live and how I communicate and how I talk to people, I will praise you. Praise is ingrained in David's being. You can sense it in his life. And we were created for this express purpose, to praise and to worship our God. Building a multi-generational church begins with creating a culture of praise in our homes and in our everyday life. Karen and I have determined that the first reaction to any concern, pain, worry, fear our kids encounter will be met first of all and foremost with prayer. My kid says he has a boo-boo, let's pray. I can't sleep, I got a headache, well let's pray. It's something I experienced in my life. Even into my young adult life, I remember I was home, we were at our cabin in Newfoundland, and earlier that year in, in a semester at, at college, I, at university, I got a massive migraine. I was in a very foolish moment. I decided to keep one contact in after I lost the other one because at least I could see something. I was downtown St. John's, and, and I needed to see. I can't see without my, like right now, you're just all, I don't know what you are. I can't tell. I know there's people. But I'm all kind of blind, okay, just to be clear. So I had one contact. If I took the other contact, I would have been been blind. Like, walking in traffic would have been an adventure. 
But I kept one in, and, and there was a, we went through this talent show, and there was a spotlight, and my, oh, man, I got the worst migraine in my life, so I had this fear in me for migraines after that. I mean, I ended up puking. I was at, I was at, at uh, Emerge, getting shots in places I don't want to ex- explain. And later that summer, I began to feel one coming on again, and the fear came over me, and I don't know how my mom did this. I, I live my life, you know, to be as close as I can to the Holy Spirit, but I look at my mom, and I don't know if I know anybody else that listens to him like she did. For some reason, she came in the room. I don't know if I was rolling in bed. I don't know if the Holy Spirit woke her out of her own room. It was late at night in the, in the wee hours in the morning. And she came in, and she asked me, what's wrong? And I'm thinking to myself, how do you know what's wrong? I have something wrong. I'm on the top bunk. And she looks over the edge. And I told her a headache was coming. She placed her hand on my chest. But they're saying another word. I said, in the name of Jesus. Less than 10 minutes later, I was asleep. No pain. I believe that he's a God who heals. I believe that he's a God who wants us to turn to him first not as a last resort. And I believe that this is something we got to pass on to our children. Not only that, we also need to take inventory of the answered prayer in our lives, of our children, and we praise God as a family for the answered prayer. We prayed for a young woman not long ago, I won't say her name, but who had a diagnosis of cancer and was given weeks to live and we begin to pray and I told my kids if 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 this prayer gets answered I said we're going to celebrate well I'm pleased to announce that we've got a celebration that we haven't done yet but we're going to do at some point we prayed and I said oh, we're going to believe this woman has been given weeks and within a couple of days we got a diagnosis back we heard that now she's been given possibly years and we prayed together as a family for this need. She's got a little bit more difficult diagnosis again recently, but we're believing. We're believing. We're believing that God's going to touch her completely, and we're believing together as a family. Because I want my children to have a culture of praise and prayer. This culture of praise should begin in our home, extend to our realm of influence, and be expressed in the unity of the church when we meet together. Ingrained in that culture of praise must also be proclamation. I believe we need to proclaim in our homes to the next generation. Verse 4 is, if not my favorite, is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. And when I remember the day I read it, for, and it stuck with me for the first time, it says, one generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. And then it goes on to explain, they speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness. And joyfully sing in your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and rich in love. I believe with all my heart that it is a fundamental. It is fundamental to the life of the church. To be a culture that welcomes the 14 year old. To sit down with the 75 year old. That the 50-year-old should sit down with the 20-year-old 
the 30-year-old should sit down with the 14-year-old, the 85-year-old to be able to sit down and, 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 you know, even just to sit next to a little infant and to be together and to acknowledge that with the church, these relationships are so important. Young people, seek out people in this church that can teach you about things that, have, that they've experienced. Listen to their testimonies. Listen to the goodness of God that they have to share with you. Listen to the proclamation of what God has done in their life. And young people, don't think you don't have anything to tell the older ones either. You do. There's things we can share. Everyone has a testimony. Revelations 12, 10 and 11 remind us of the power of our testimony. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. This is the end of the enemy that wars against us. And then he says in verse 11, it says, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah. And by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink even from death. Sometimes we get caught up thinking we have nothing to offer the next generation. We have nothing in common. I don't like their music. They dress weird. They don't have any manners. Crazy kids. Why is her hair blue? Look at the tattoos. Why would they wear that to church? I can't believe a pastor is wearing a jean jacket on the platform. Wow. And it's blue. If it was black, that'd be okay, right, Gen Xers? I don't know what it was about when I was growing up. You know, the blue jeans, evil. Black jeans, not bad. Is it just me? <laughs> it goes both ways too, though. Young people, you don't get off the hook here. You know, we have terms for elders. We have terms for people that we feel don't understand us. You know, we use them in society. Oh, you boomer. I, some of you are like, well, I am. I'm a, you know, I'm a baby boomer. I'm part of that generation. Well, you know what? Sometimes people refer to people as boomer who don't understand them. Karen, pop culture references, right? We understand what I'm talking about today. It's not always just, you know, the, the kajudi old person or whatever that we want to call them or whatever that they, seems to look down on the young generation. We got our problems too. And I'm you say, yeah, I said we. I'm only 44. I got white hair, but I feel like a young guy. Some of you are like, we. Look at you. Let me tell you about a man named Colin. He passed away a few years back. And it hit me, hit me quite hard. Um, when I first started ministry uh, here in southwestern Ontario, I was just, oh, man, I was 21 years old, not quite married. I lived, lived at this place for uh, an apartment by myself for a few months. And, 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 and then I got married to my wife later that year in July 21st. Remembered our anniversary, too. Good. I'm good. And uh, she then came, and, and, and we began our ministry as a couple at that point. And, and I turned 22. That I was not very old. And he was, I think, maybe about 83, 82, somewhere in that range at the time. 
And I, I was just learning golf back then, and I used to, uh, we didn't have kids, so we could do whatever we wanted. That was great, wasn't it? All you parents, you know, when you didn't have kids, and you can go to movies when you want, you can go golf when you want. Remember those days? Yeah, get over it. You're, you're, you're fine. You'll get, they'll come back when you're grandparents. I'm just kidding. But every time, we didn't make a lot of money, so Carrie Ann worked three jobs, I worked three jobs, so if I came home, she wasn't there, I was off at the golf course. I would go off to the golf course, and I would play, man, probably 40 rounds a year at that point. But I, I used to do it that way because they were, the golf course had a really cheap weekday membership, and so I, 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 I buy it every year, and I remember you know, going there, and I got in the habit of going on Monday. I would get up early in the morning at 6, 6.30, and you're like, I, I know, an early 20-year-old getting up that early, right? But... I would get up and I would go golf, and then at 11 o'clock I would come off the course, I'd be done my first 18, and then Colin would be coming on in his cart. And I would hop in the cart with him, and I would go and golf with him at 11. And so every Sunday, every Saturday, every Monday, I would play two rounds of golf, and I used to love, I couldn't wait till he showed up. And I would sit in, and I loved his general wisdom about everything. He told me what every tree was on the golf course. He told me what every bird that was chirping. He, he showed me what mushrooms I could pick up off the ground and eat. I didn't do that. I just, me and mushrooms, I'm not sure, right? Like, I don't want to be seeing, like, TVs running at me or anything, so. <laughs> but he, he taught me all these things, and he just, oh man, he just calmed me down. He was such a relaxing man. And every now and again, he would ask me about my family and the little things. And I look back now and see the little spiritual nuggets, the little things he would say once in a while. And he would, he would rib me, too. He, he would troll me so hard sometimes. He'd be like, you young guys, he said, you play golf way more exciting than we do. I know, I, you know, I wish I could play golf like you, he says. He says, you play a way more exciting game than me. He says, you're hitting it over there and off there and all over the place. I just hit it down the middle. It's kind of boring. He said, I wish, you know, I wish I played more like you, he says, but, you know, I'll just, I guess I'll just stay hitting it down the middle, if that's all right with you. He would joke, man, I love my relationship with Colin. He was our faithful usher in the church. And I remember one day, one, um, the beginning of the summer, and he noticed that I hadn't been at the golf course that much, and we, like I said, we were working six jobs between us. We didn't have a lot of money, and we realized that I couldn't really afford the membership that year. And he walked in my office and he put the blue card on my desk. And I'm not saying that the only way you can show your affection is to buy stuff for people. That's not what I'm saying. Nobody else knew. I'm letting you in on it right now. But he's been passed for a few years. <laughs> if, he knew, if he knew I was telling you now, he'd be upset with me. He was a very humble man. But he said, you know, I see what this does for you. And how, relax, how relaxing, and he's, you know, and I think, you know, he said, I miss you on the course, and he just did that for me, and it meant so much. But not only that, is he was such a powerful spiritual mentor in my life, too. Colin taught me so much about how the church should love across generational lines. How he interacted with the little kids. Even a young man that I, that I, I mentored to this day, I remember him reaching out one time, cracking him on the back of the legs with his cane just to get his attention, but again, just an endearment, right? It was just a way to interact with him. He always cared about everybody. And I remember when I was branching out and uh, I was putting my name in to become a lead pastor for the first time, and we were having a backyard gathering at a, at a, a family's house from the church, and and we, we were getting ready to leave to drive up north to go to our interview. And Colin 
The other lady says, yeah, young feller, young feller, wait a second. And I, so I waited for him to come over to me. And he says, you hurry back now. He says, you're not going to be here much longer. And I said, what do you mean by that? He says, you're going to be a lead pastor. He says, he says, it's time for you, he says, to move on from this youth pastor. And don't get me wrong, I don't know if I've ever moved on from it. I mean, I love the church and every aspect of it. But he says, but it's time for you to go lead a church on your own. And I'm like, I've never told anybody this. I mean, the only people we talked about was you, myself. And he comes over, and I believe there's a spirit, you know, encouraging a young man through a mentor. And was the first person who acknowledged in my life publicly to my face that the things I was feeling in my heart were evident in my call. And I cannot tell you how valuable that was to me. I remember the te testimonies of generations ahead of me. Like my dad being healed as a boy from polio, listening to a radio sermon broadcast on the radio, sitting on his mom's lap, and the minister on the radio called out for prayer and says, as a sign of faith, put your, put your hand on the, on the volume dial. And so my, my grandmother, a great prayer warrior, took his hand out and placed it on the dial and they prayed and my dad jumped off her lap, healed. I remember feeling the presence of God as mentors of mine told me as a teenager how the baptism of the Holy Spirit changed their lives. And how their testimony made me long for it in my own life. I remember those who came to me after I accepted my call, the call of God on my life. And that's a whole story in and of itself. But they came and they confirmed in my heart by telling me that they had seen things. And that they, God had pressed on their heart. And they came and confirmed the call of God on my life. And I can't tell you how valuable that was as a young man who was full of doubt. Because even when we say yes, a lot of times the doubt just doesn't wash away, right? But sometimes when we do say yes, we go through that first door. God brings those who he's speaking of, speaking to, because the Holy Spirit is not confused. And he brought those people in. And he stilled the heart, and he stilled the mind of a man, a young man full of doubt. That's the church. That's the church. That is commending his good works from one generation to the next. That's the church. That's proclaiming the truth of God. That is commending his works through a culture of praise from one generation to the next. We must be bold enough to proclaim the good news and to share our story across generational lines. And we must be aware that we benefit no one if we give the next generation a watered-down version of truth. I read a post from a, a friend of mine recently that talked about that. It talked about how we need to have a standard for our leaders and that we need to make sure that we're not watering the truth. Because you know what? If you water down your truth for this generation, then guess what they're going to do for the next generation? And then what's that going to do for the next generation? It is our imperative. It is our strict responsibility to make sure we tell the truth that we pray with our kids, that we tell them the power of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that we tell them that Jesus died for their sins, that we tell them that the Holy Spirit can speak to them and guide them and tell them the truths. We 
You cannot water it down. We do no one any good when we do that. Also ingrained in the culture of praise is acknowledgement. We need to acknowledge God in everything. I don't know if you noticed, but if you've ever read through the, the minor prophets and the major prophets in the Old Testament, you would see many times, and particularly it stood out to me in Hosea, how it says that they did not acknowledge their God. They did not give Him glory. They did not. They failed to acknowledge their God, and they acknowledged other things. I've kind of touched on this a bit already because praise and proclamation and definitely acknowledgement uh, kind of all fit into the same category in a lot of ways, but allow me to expand on the idea a little further. Just listen to how the psalmist acknowledges God in the light of the generations to come. He says in verse 10, All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. Why do we do this? So that all people may know of your mighty acts and acknowledge what you have done in their life and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. When I get healed, I acknowledge God. When we have a meal and, we, and, and, and it was provided for us, I acknowledge that it came from God's hand. When it's a sunny day, I acknowledge God. When it's a rainy day, I acknowledge God. The home that we live in, I acknowledge God. The clothes we have. If I tell my kids to pick up, you know, you know, we say it all the time, you know. You know, there's people that don't have as much clothes as you do, you know. Like, I was like, I can't believe I just said that. How old am I? You know, we scold our kids this way. But we want them to understand the value that everything we have is from God. And some people don't have what you have. And we need to share it. He goes on to say in verse 13, the Lord is trustworthy. He keeps His promises. Verse 14, the Lord upholds those who fall and lifts up the discouraged. In verse 15, we place our hopes in Him and He provides in His perfect time. Verse 16, the Lord knows what we desire better than we do ourselves and He alone satisfies. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous and perfect in justice. Hallelujah. Verse 17, He is faithful. He is near and available to those who honestly reach out to Him in verse 18. He is trustworthy and He hears us in verse 19. He watches over us, His church, and guards us and loves us in verse 20. The psalmist knew how to acknowledge their Savior as Lord. And he was unhindered and unashamed to do so. Imagine the effect of the regular acknowledgement of these truths can have across generational lines. To give the glory of God to, to God alone, pardon me. He is a source of all we know, everything that we enjoy. People oftentimes, I've said this before, people oftentimes get caught up in hell. I can't believe the Bible describes hell this way. And they talk about fire and they talk about things. And I'm not saying the Bible don't say those things. But when I think about hell, the thing that scares me the most... The only thing that stops me in my track when I think of people going to hell is that there will be no God there. Hell, in and of itself, is the absence of the presence of God. Think about that for a minute. The ramifications, if the presence of God was lived from this earth, 
It says in Colossians that by him, he created all things and he sustains all things and he holds all things together. Imagine if he stopped doing that today. We would have destroyed his creation long ago. We all need these truths. But as a dad, as a pastor, as a disciple, a believer, it is my responsibility to acknowledge who he is through a culture of praise to all generations. And you may be thinking, you know, I'm talking about people, you know, should God tarry? If I could use that old Pentecostal term. I'm thinking about my kids' kids and their kids' kids. I'm talking about the generations to come. I want my kids to know the truth. I want them to be solid in the truth so that when they tell the truth to their kids, that they'll do it, and they'll do it in a solid, factual, godly way. Acts 17, verse 28, Paul says that in God, we live and move and have our being. Tim Keller expands on this. He states that he was speaking to Greek philosophers at the time. This is what he was, who he's talking about. He's speaking to Greek philosophers at the time. You know the story in Acts chapter 17 with the council of the Arapagus and, and they're debating, you know, and he comes up to the monument that's, they were so paranoid that they would miss a god that they were worshiping, that they acknowledged all the gods and even the, the ones they didn't know about. And they had a monument to an unknown god. It's craziness. And this is the Greek philosophers that, people, that Paul is talking to here. He was speaking to the Greek philosophers at the time, people who didn't believe in God. Not the God that Paul was preaching anyway. He meant that even though we may not acknowledge the God of the Bible, He is still upholding our lives in ways we cannot see. We need to understand that when we say we live and we move and have our being, this is true for the church, it is true for society. People may not realize it, but it is the truth. And what would happen if God were to truly remove his gracious, sustaining power from our lives? It would be kind, a kind of spiritual agony, a disintegration that would go on forever across all generations. Since our souls are built for his love, his presence. There was a tree in the garden that God told Adam and Eve to stay away from. One tree in a garden full of blessings. And we disobeyed. But God is gracious. He had already planned paradise for us. He had planned perfect fellowship. He had planned the cool evening walks with his creation he had planned all this intimate fellowship but we we messed it up and after that moment the rest of scripture and i wish people would see the bible as a meta-narrative the whole truth the old testament and the new testament but everything in the, in the old testament points to the cross it points to Jesus coming. You know, you can look at the, the prophecies in Isaiah. You can look at the prophecies in Micah. You can look at the prophecies in Psalms. You can go back to Moses and look at how he prophesied about the Messiah who was coming. You can go all back, back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
where it talks about how the Messiah would crush the head of the serpent. The gospel's all through there. And everything from that point on, from the day we broke that relationship, was a plan for God to restore that relationship again. And one day again, we're going to be standing around another tree. Hallelujah. And that perfect fellowship is going to be restored. He planned us to live in His love and catch the gravity of this word, His presence. I've said, you know, I've, I've talked to people before, but I, I believe we need to welcome God's presence here. I believe we need to use this language, but, but I, I really believe worship is more about heightening our awareness of His presence. We act sometimes like He comes and goes. He doesn't come and go. When you woke up this morning, He was there. When you sent your kid off to university, He's with him. You know, when, when you came to church, he was here before you. He saw me open the door this morning at 7.30. He was here. When we came in here, it is not his posture that needs to change. It is ours. We need to acknowledge his presence. We need to change our posture. Allow him to wake our understanding up to who he is, to, to acknowledge his presence. And sometimes you don't feel like it, do we? You know how the enemy comes in your house on a Sunday morning? You ever notice that? With young kids? And the little squabbles, the things, you know, you can get your kids and get up and get them out the door every day at 8 o'clock, you know, to get to school. But Sunday when they got to be out the door, or even a little later, you know, it's like this war that happens. And you got to call that what it is. Is the enemy trying to get you to focus on something other than God? And when you acknowledge that in your home, you're teaching your children that as well. I remember one time, I know it's hard to believe that I actually ever fought with my siblings, but that was a joke, by the way. But we did. <laughs> Three boys. I was the one in the middle. Probably the hardest to get along with, I'm not going to lie. But we used to argue and fight. I remember one Sunday morning, we were arguing and fighting, and mom, I remember mom telling us to stop, and we were fighting and arguing, and it was just tense, it was, it was crazy in the house, and we were fighting, and I remember coming up the stairs, and my mom coming out and stepping in the middle of the house, she says, enemy, get out of my house! I was probably 14, correct me in my math, 30 years later, I'm telling this story. It affected me deeply. My mom said, nope, this is a house that belongs to God. You don't belong here. And every one of us stopped, and there was a peace that entered the moment. It's hard to explain, but it's something we've got to teach. It's how you acknowledge the presence of God. It's how you say as believers and as parents, as grandparents, that we live and we move. In you, Lord, and in you we have our being. It acknowledges that we cannot exist without him, and a future without him is misery. Our souls are built for his love and presence. Praise should be like breathing, proclaiming and commending his good works across generational lines should be anticipated and natural. 
and acknowledging that everything we are, everything we have, our very being is from Him, should leave a lasting generational impression, dare I say, an eternal one. I don't know about you, but that sounds like great motivation for His church to be a multi-generational one, doesn't it? I want to close this with this little story, and I'm, I'm picking on my son Ollie a little bit here today. I told this to the board, board members at a meeting on Tuesday night about how I go to Value Village. I'm, I'm an old book geek. I like to read books. I, I, I read some on the tablet once in a while, but I, I, I don't know. I like to have the book in my hand. So I go to, I found some real nuggets at Value Village. Another story, anyway. I go to used places. I like getting books places, and I would. We're in Value Village, and, and Ollie comes up and he says, Dick, I want a Bible. I said, well, you have a Bible at home. He said, yeah, I want one that I could just, I want to pick one. And I look up on the shelf, and wouldn't you know, there was a life application youth Bible. It's maybe a little old for him. And I said, how about this one? It's brand new. He said, yeah. And I watched him hold it. And when we came home, he comes in the house. And he goes and he sits in the corner of the couch. And he says, Dad, can you turn on your lamp? He calls it my lamp. And he sits down and reads his Bible. And I realized that he was doing what I do. When I get up in the morning, come down and get a coffee, I sit there. It's where I first speak to Jesus in the morning. And every now and again, he comes down, and he'll just sit there with me, and he'll cuddle. When he was going over and he sat there and he put the Bible in his lap and he opened it up and he began to read it. And I look at him and I said, Jesus, this day and every day. He's only eight. He hasn't got the habit built yet. But I got to tell you what that spoke to my heart. And whether it's in your home, in this church, we got to celebrate generations. i got to tell you, when we were here a couple Friday nights ago for the worship night, and I heard that young man, Darnell, I can't get that guy out of my mind, get up here and preach for the first time and share his heart, man, I jumped and I was excited for him. we got to learn how to celebrate for each other, right? You know, it doesn't matter if we find out that somebody gets saved in, in kids' church downstairs during Sunday, or we find out they get saved at Joy Unlimited, Amen? We gotta celebrate across generational lines. We gotta be happy and, and encourage each other and praise and proclaim and acknowledge the God of all creation. Deuteronomy 5:10, and I'll close with this, and we're gonna sing and we're gonna worship and praise him out of this building today. Deuteronomy 5:10, it's in the middle of the, the Ten Commandments, and he's warning them about, you know, idolatry and gives them consequences if you keep in idolatry about what it'll do generationally but then he says this at the end he says but I lavish love a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands the church was built to love that love was meant to inspire obedience right and from that obedience there's prayer there's fellowship there's everything else. There's the kingdom of God. God has planned for us. So we thank him today. We thank him that for a thousand generations, he has planned for us these great moments. Father, we love you. We honor you today. Lord, thank you, Lord, for the church. 
Lord, we love her. We love the church. Lord, we love the church because you love the church. We love the church because you died for the church. And Lord, we love the church because it is the hope of the world. Because we have the most important message that we could ever pass on to our children, to the generations to come, to anybody that will listen, Lord Jesus. We love you, Jesus. So, Father, I ask that you would just seal this word again in our heart today. Holy Spirit, that you would let it affect our homes, that you would let it affect our realm of influence, and that we would see it move and active, moving, Lord, within this body. That we see this community, Lord Jesus, mutual honor and respect and testimonies being shared and a family growing together no matter what age. Lord, we love you. We honor you in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody say it. Amen. God bless you this morning. Let's worship together.